0: Dan Knosson graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and became a Navy SEAL. He would deploy multiple times to Iraq and Afghanistan and served as a platoon commander for SEAL Team 1. In 2009, on a night mission in the Afghanistan mountains, Dan stepped on an IED, losing both legs in the blast. He would later be awarded a Purple Heart and Bronze Star with valor. Never one to shy away from a challenge, Dan eventually earned a spot on the 2014 U.S. Paralympic biathlon team. The Harvard University graduate would return to the Paralympic Games in 2018, winning one gold, four silver, and one bronze medal. He is now training to compete for Team USA once again at the 2022 Paralympic Games. We talk with Dan about the sport of Nordic skiing, about getting outside, and the benefits of being in nature. So, Dan, I always love uh, when I'm talking to uh, a fellow veteran, uh, I always... Uh, start by asking what what prompted you to, to sign up and to serve our country?
1: Well, I'm originally from Kansas, and I grew up on a family farm that has been in my family since the later 19th century, five generations. I grew up running around on the farm. I wasn't raised as a farmer, but I certainly went on some tractor rides and had a lot of fun and just really got to enjoy being outside. It was a fortunate childhood. My father had served in the Vietnam War era as a Marine. Uh, His father had been a World War II era soldier in the Army. Mm. I I, I don't recall ever having any pressure to go into the military. This was purely my choice, but it was such that it didn't even really feel like a choice. It just felt, I would say, you know, This was my direction the road i'm going down and i then it just was a matter of well which service do you want to go to i I wanted to combine military service with furthering my education and going to college so i naturally gravitated towards wanting to attend one of the u.s service academies geographically the air force academy was the closest but i didn't have any desire to really fly a plane or (laughs) sit in a missile silo for my career so i i thought and was just kind of gravitating to infantry-like units, so I thought I'll apply to West Point for Army Infantry or Army Special Forces uh, and apply to the Naval Academy for the Marine Corps, and in my senior year of high school, I found out that I got into the Naval Academy, and I was really excited about that because I did not want to go up to West Point, New York. (laughs) (laughs) I had gone up there a senior year in high school as sort of a a Tour weekend and it was gray and the uniforms are gray and the Hudson Valley was gray <laughs> and it's called the Long Gray Line.
0: Uh-huh. And then when I
1: went to the Naval Academy for the the kind of tour weekend, it was you know right outside the gates. It's the Annapolis, this colonial town. There's a lot going on. There was an Army Navy soccer game that weekend and Navy won and everyone was all excited. And so I thought, well, this is this is uh, in addition to having the opportunity to go in the Marine Corps this is this is the school that I'm going to go to. And I was very, very fortunate to have been accepted because uh, I think applying from Kansas, it's a little bit easier than in other places in the country to get accepted. But I was very, very excited to go, but also a bit apprehensive, not knowing what to expect when I got there.
0: Yeah, no, you, you painted that picture very well. I mean, Annapolis, uh, obviously, is just about 40 minutes from where I live and a beautiful town right on... The, right on the bay and on water and, and the, and the Naval Academy is right on the water. So yeah, it's a, you painted a very, very good picture of that. Uh, and why you'd want to, why you want to go there maybe. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so obviously you, you, you went to the Naval Academy. Um, what did you study?
1: Well, I was an English major at the Naval Academy. The, the, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that every graduate from, the Naval Academy graduates with a bachelor of science. So I have a bachelor of science degree in English literature, which is a little bit of an an oxymoron, but, uh, but I, I, I love literature. I love, I really, as a kid, I loved reading books about war and that I'm, when you to answer your first question about why did I choose the military? I think a lot of that has to do with the reading that I was doing as a kid. And I still love to read and, and, One of the things I I love history as well, but one of the unique things about literature is that you have a little bit of artistic leeway. The author does to create scenarios that are not necessarily tied in by historical fact, like a historian writing about history. Mm. And so you can create uh, scenarios in war that are that are maybe truer than writing history so to speak or truer in a different way in the, in the human way and that is something that i, I do like about books and novels and, and literature and in particular war literature
0: right and as, as as you know history is told by one perspective anyway so why not allow an author um, or not a historian maybe kind of shared a different lens or perspective like, like you said the human lens or perspective maybe then um, and you're still getting history, right? So uh, every piece of literature is still kind of rooted in some sort of a, a you know historical context or period or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I know obviously as a, as a cadet and as, as someone that's that's going to um, uh, w- what year do you have to typically make your make a decision on on, on kind of what your route is um, uh, in terms of service? Sure. You do,
1: you do make that decision formally your senior year and you find, which is called the first class year. You find out later that year. So for us, the, uh, they call it a service. It's a big day. It's a really big day. You're, mm-hmm. It's in, I believe later in January. So at the beginning of the second semester, you go in, uh, it's organized via company. You f- you find your assignment and you mm-hmm. realize what are you going to be doing after you graduate? And by this time I was dead set on wanting to be selected to go to BUDS, basic underwater demolition seal school. Uh, Things Mm -hmm. had changed. I went to the Naval Academy wanting to be a Marine, Mm -hmm. but in the beginning of my senior year, you know, we're, we're choosing what we want to do. A lot of the people that wanted to be selected for seal training, they're putting as number two, a choice to go typically into surface warfare, to be on a ship because the argument was, well, you still have a chance to go to BUDS from a ship, from the fleet. And uh, a certain proportion of the officers who get to go to BUDS every year do actually come from the fleet. It's not a big amount, but there are those. And so the theory went, if you put ships as number two, that would indicate you really are pretty serious about wanting to go to BUDS. I put the Marine Corps as number two because 9-11 happened my senior year. And Mm. we were, we were, we knew, we knew that. Uh, we are going into a different world as we graduate, uh, unlike even the class before us, the class of 2001, mm-hmm. they graduated and and they were going into a peacetime world. Uh, so this is going to be different. And, and it was based on the nature of the uh, those attacks and what the U.S. response was, uh, the Marine Corps and Seal teams were going to be directly involved, and so that's why I wanted number one and number two choice. And uh, in my case, I was fortunate enough to get one of the uh, sixteen spots to go to Buds. Yeah,
0: that's (laughs) kind of my graduating class. Huh, that's amazing. And um, and so let's talk about once you once you um, uh, obviously get into the military, were you where were your duty assignments or duty stations?
1: Sure, I I reported to Coronado, California, a, a month after graduating from the Naval Academy for basic underwater demolition seal training.
0: A tough and, place, a, a tough place to report, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Coronado has, uh, on this, for those who may be listening that do not have exposure, experience, knowledge of Coronado. It's a it's a quasi island. It's it's not technically an island, but it sits off of San Diego. It's connected to San Diego's downtown by a very tall bridge mm-hmm. kind of at the northern end tall enough for naval ships to pass mm-hmm. under the middle of it and it's connected to the south which is very very the southwest corner of the united states by an eight mile pretty narrow strip called the silver strand and uh it's a narrow beach and the buds compound is about 200 meters south of the historic hotel del coronado now things have changed Lately, the the whole SEAL teams at Bud's, I believe, are even moving eight miles to the the southern end of the Silver Strand. At least the teams have moved. And I think Uh Bud's is due to follow. It may not be there yet. But in 2002, when I reported out there, you had a pretty big contrast between this really premier luxury hotel just to the north and then this pretty, pretty Spartan, austere seal compound buds compound where you're doing your training and uh it, it was an amazing ability for coronado in the middle of the night or two in the morning to feel like you are the remote end of the earth with no civilization you feel like you're the only people out on the beach <laughs> but it was exciting for me you know i'm from kansas a landlocked state and being in coronado and in san diego was just really exciting
0: and how long how long is bud's school or bud's training Bud's as a school is uh, seven months. I think
1: that when you, when you phase up and start first phase from there, it's about six months, but they do now about a one month preparatory phase indoctrination and, and that's about, so total of seven months. And then there's follow-on training, uh, qualification training, the whole process. If you get through takes 12 to 15 months. Now, on the officer side, they tack in a few extra months, so it takes about 15 months. On the enlisted side, about 12 months. Now, for the inter- duration of my career, I was only assigned in Coronado. I never took assignment at the other locations where the SEAL teams are, which is Virginia Beach, mm-hmm. uh, Damneck, Virginia, Hawaii, and then we have overseas units, Germany, Bahrain, Guam. I've been to these places, but never was actually assigned and stationed in a, anywhere else other than Coronado.
0: Okay. All right. That makes sense. And so um, for those that may not know, know your story, talk about, you know, um, how, how, how you got your injury.
1: Sure. I did make it all the way through SEAL training. It certainly in, in some places pushed me to my limit or, or it really made it clear to me that what I thought were my limits were not necessarily my actual limits. Mm. And it was, and I forged really great friendships and then started deploying as a junior officer in the SEAL teams. And by the time 2009 came around, I'm six, seven years into my career. I'm a platoon commander, went through the 18 month platoon training workup cycle. And we were selected along with our sister platoon to go to afghanistan we would be conducting operations against al qaeda and taliban we were going to have based on this deployment uh, dedicated helicopters supporting us uh, flown by the, be- the army's best helicopter pilots and we'd be we'd be doing what seals or team guys trained to do which is going directly after enemy forces. And it's about as good of a deployment order as you can get. And I had been a little bit frustrated, to be honest, earlier in my career in the SEAL teams, because well, you don't really control your deployment order itself. You don't control the timing of it and you get a tasking and you go. And sometimes the government of the United States wants a SEAL platoon or an Army Special Forces A team to go do things that the members of that unit are not totally excited about this presents some leadership challenges and also some personal challenges because you know when there's when there when there is combat going on you go through all this training and you tend to want to put your skills to the ultimate test which is the test of combat and i didn't really have i've been on some operations but i didn't have what i consider combat experience which is being in firefights making calls under fire Hmm. That kind of leadership really is the ultimate test and is what you train for as an officer in the SEAL teams to be able to manage that kind of chaos. And so I didn't have it. So I was feeling a little professionally insecure. But this at least
0: an- at least anxious, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, just you know, just, you just want to get you just want to get that experience. And because the combat experience is the mark of respect. And and some might say, well, you know, I, I had been to Afghanistan, I've been to Iraq. But I didn't have. I had. I, didn't, I hadn't been in firefights, and and so, mm-hmm. um, not that. I mean, in many ways, you know, uh, an operation can be success, very successful, and there's no shots fired. But, but uh, you know, I I, I felt like uh, I was a like a boxer who hadn't really been hit yet, and so it I didn't have, have that that exposure. But this deployment, if I was really only going to pick one, that could be. For me, if, if there was only going to be one real good deployment in my career, meaning one that would really, really put the skills and the training to the test, then I would want it to be this one where I'm the platoon commander and mm-hmm. uh, I have the most leadership and responsibility thus far in my career. And so there is the most potential to put all of this to the test on this deployment. But I went out early in advance of the rest of the platoon, along with some of my other platoon mates, which is pretty, which is very standard operating procedure, just to get the lay of the land mm-hmm. and get some experience on the ground. Meet up with the, the platoon we'd be replacing, and they were going out on a nighttime assault operation that I was going to be a part of. And to make a long story short, on in the course of that operation, I was injured by stepping on a improvised improvised explosive device, a pressure plate that was buried underground, and these. These are maybe you know two plates that can make a connection when the weight of a human up above mm-hmm. presses down on the earth or an object, and then the bomb goes off. The this was up on a in the top of a hill, very remote area in southern Afghanistan. There were about ten of us up there. We had a, a main assault force down below. Part of this operation was about to commence, and my teammates responded really, really just amazingly. They selflessly put their own lives at, on the line to try to get me out of this situation. There was a scramble to get the helicopters back. The, the helicopter was getting really low on fuel. They got me down off this hill. It was, it was very, very painful to go through the, the process of getting off the hill through uh, a lot of a lot of pain being dragged over the rocks to get down. And then I got on the helicopter, and then I woke up in the hospital. That is the story of how I got injured. And then there's this whole other story now about waking up in the hospital, figuring out what has happened, and where do I go from here?
0: Yeah, and I was gonna, I was gonna ask you in terms of, uh, like, was there um, any limb sal- salvation attempts? You know, I mean, what, what was during the rehabilitation process? What was, what were those conversations like?
1: I woke up in the hospital approximately 10 days after stepping on the IED and Mm -hmm. found out that I had been transported from Kandahar's Airfield Medical Center or Field Hospital, whatever you want to call it, to Bagram's Field Hospital, to Mm -hmm. Ronstuhl, which is a large-scale military hospital. That's in Germany. Germany, yeah. Every echelon gets a little bit better and better, but you gotta be stable enough to be flown there. Mm -hmm. And I was going through surgery after surgery, after surgery. I was told that on one of my limbs, I initially had kept the knee, but when I woke up 10 days later, both of my legs were amputated above the knees. i no longer had the full femur. And so, there was no limb salvage. I for, I was very fortunate not to be infected in either of my lower mm-hmm. limbs. I had a fever. It was burning. And and then that fever persisted for a couple of weeks. And they thought, maybe I am infected. There was nothing that seemed to work. And, and that fever was really just playing havoc with my mind and, and mixing with the painkillers I was on. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sleeping very well. And if I could fall asleep, it was... These really like delirious uh, opioid-infused nightmares that were tormenting me, but I wasn't infected in my lower limbs, and that was a major, major thing because I did meet many service members who were, and what may have been a below-knee amputation now is something is getting up into the hip region, and, and they're losing their entire limb through the hip, and, and that presents significant challenges for ever trying to walk on a prosthetic. So mm-hmm. for me, it was very, very fortunate that I was able to keep the length of both of my limbs, which is just just amputated above the knee. And if, if you're gonna be a double amputee above both of your knees, you want as much femur length as you can possibly get in order to fit and, and lever the prosthet- prosthetic legs
0: yeah it's a good good point i mean obviously you want as much as much of that limb as possible to to have something to work something to work with right and and yeah. to have that flexibility in the hip to be able to 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 be able to walk
1: yeah absolutely we when you get out of you know i was at bethesda naval hospital in the beginning and it's going through surgery 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 eventually got transferred over to walter reed military medical center at the time these These two hospitals were separate. They're both in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. Now they're integrated, Mm -hmm. but I had to transfer over to Walter Reed, still an inpatient for the first week or two at Walter Reed, but then became an outpatient and was starting to do physical therapy. That's when you get in the environment where soldiers and Marines, airmen are coming into this therapy room. And based on their PT appointment schedule, they're doing physical therapy with an assigned physical therapist. And it becomes this environment where you're, you're There's camaraderie, there's humor, there's competition. And that made physical rehabilitation just a lot better. You're not doing this, going through this all by yourself. And so there was an amazing ability for somebody who May not have had a, a rank that was consistent with leadership in the formalized military to now actually be a leader in this environment, leading through example by working hard and training, training to get your life back.
0: I know, Walter Reed, obviously, uh, rec therapy and, and a number of adaptive sports are a big part of rehabilitation. What was that? What was that kind of process for you and, and did you did you try and play a number of sports and activities and uh and before we get into obviously uh what you're doing now um uh, were there other, were there other sports that you really liked or sports that you didn't li- didn't like
1: when you're when, when i was at walter reed there were dozens and dozens of injured service members it's hard to I think for maybe people who who haven't experienced this to comprehend how many soldiers, marines, airmen are in this environment missing limbs. And uh, there were two other centers for the you know, we were get you know, hundreds of amputee amputations and, and battlefield injuries that were are being kept alive. In addition to service members who may have been on a motorcycle or, or there are other causes for amputation, we're all doing physical therapy in this environment and the other two centers were in texas at brook army as you said Mm -hmm. and in san diego at balboa hospital so we had a lot of people but there were a lot of resources and a lot of nonprofit organizations were stepping up to fill fill a gap a gap in in uh, access to equipment a gap in ability to go on trips and so there were these organizations coming. hey do you want to go fly fishing this weekend do you want to go out to uh, on a hunting trip in uh, British Columbia do you want to go skydiving do you want to go scuba diving do you want to go on a wounded warrior bike ride <laughs> it's just kind of overwhelming you know I'm thinking every day that I am not here doing my physical therapy is one day extra tacked on to this recovery process so I was, I was picking and choosing but I really was Gravitating to the hand cycling, but I kind of tried to keep it very narrow and mm-hmm. focused, and focus on my physical therapy. And the goal was to walk and then to run. That mm-hmm. was my goal out of this pro, and to not use a wheelchair. And everything else was secondary to those goals. And then I got approached by a recruiter from the U.S. Olympic Committee. It's now called the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to introduce me to adaptive sports in in Conjunction with the Paralympic
0: program, mm-hmm. and 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 were they specific uh, to uh, Nordic skiing, or at that time, or was it? Were they just interested in in seeing what my, you might be interested in? It wasn't
1: specific to Nordic skiing. It made sense for the Paralympic program to have a recruiter at Walter Reed because you mm-hmm. have a, a myriad of injured. Service members who are in their late teens, twenties. In my case, I was at this time about thirty, looking to do the next thing in their life, and 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 wanting to be part of a team, wanting to represent the United States, wanting to have a sense of purpose, wanting to have a sense of physicality, to uh, camaraderie, and to and to compete. So this, for several veterans that that I was in that environment with, this was a really instant attachment this is and for me it was it was the same I just knew that this is what I should be doing I had an athletic background before and I wanted to I I wanted I think I wanted to transfer my identity as a navy seal into something that had physicality just wrapped all around it and that's that's by its nature in the paralympics you have to have a disability whereas in that that is a requirement whereas in any other thing that I think, well, I would want to be a Navy SEAL still, but I can't. I can't deploy. I can't be operational. That's not going to happen. Okay, what about working for the FBI? That's uh, not in the way that I would want to. I'm not going to be able to be on a SWAT team, or uh, you know, I'd be behind a desk, and that's not really that's not really the way I want to structure my life. So I, I very much was focused on the Paralympics. But the question was, what kind of sport is this? What's the the right sport for me? And I was thinking running. I just started running on the prosthetics. But I went out to San Diego, and the two coaches from the Paralympic Nordic team, which encompasses biathlon mm-hmm. and cross country skiing, asked if I was interested, in, specifically interested in doing biathlon. And at the time, I was thinking biathlon is that like that's like triathlon, but it's it's just <laughs> running and swimming or something. They're like, no, no, it's uh, cross country skiing with target shooting. Mm-hmm. and i'm thinking that sounds pretty cool it's like doing stress courses in the military cross country skiing sounds awesome it would be a really good way to get in the woods again i'd love mm-hmm. hiking and mountaineering before my injury I was really craving that access in and around nature and hand cycling wasn't doing that for me so much at least not in dc with the traffic true and <laughs> running on prosthetics, it's pretty hard to, to trail run, or at least in the early days. I can do it now, but I'm a lot further along. But cross-country skiing really seemed appealing to me.
0: Well, and obviously, anybody with a military background that you know has to uh, take sharp, you know, sh- sharpshooting classes and skills, and I mean that, thats a natural fit. You know, the biathlon is just a natural fit uh, for i would i would think for the usopc it'll be looking for military folks that have that background of, of shooting to to be able to come right in and if, if you haven't skied that's the main thing you need to learn
1: it is the main thing and and there is nothing like specifically training for biathlon to be good at biathlon no other thing can really prepare you i think the learning curve with the skiing and shooting. In terms of the shooting, is a little bit quicker, maybe perhaps for those with a military background, but certainly the type of rifle you're shooting is way different. Mm -hmm. You may actually find, let's say you were an automatic weapons gunner, a machine gunner, you you may actually have some pretty bad habits with shooting that can be hard to overcome with precision shooting. Mm -hmm. So, and then and then the biathlon is just a humbling sport. You may think. I'm going to be really good at this. That's just ego. That's actually the ego thinking that but it's not actually based on reality because the, the number one thing to be good in biathlon is to be a fast skier. Then it takes the pressure off the shooting. But often when you're first into biathlon, you realize that you can't ski fast enough to even be competitive, even if you do hit all your shots and, 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 and that the best athletes, they ski so fast. And that when they back off a notch, they can just cruise at this pace that everyone else finds difficult. And that they can cruise with a, a lower heart rate and, and that they really know their body and that they can back off maybe 30 to 45 seconds before coming into the range. And their heart rate drops a lot and that they're 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 confident, they're smooth, they're fast in just being smooth. So it's a, it's a very complicated sport that. It still is is incredibly challenging for me, and I think even even when I watch Olympic biathlon, the best in the world still have bad races. It's just it's just one of those sports; you cannot always be good at it. There are there are ups and downs, and a lot of it has to do with what's going on up in your head.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned obviously the benefit of just being outdoors, but what else is it about cross country skiing that got you hooked
1: well it really is just being outside and in in the woods and and the places in the united states where you can cross-country ski are great places to be west yellowstone montana sun valley idaho Methow valley washington i in the northeast i love craftsbury vermont lake placid mm. in jackson new hampshire or great glen in minnesota wisconsin michigan There. are Montana, Bozeman, and uh, Colorado, where I lived for a few years, training while still on active duty. Winter Park area, just phenomenal Mm -hmm. places to train, and that connection with the with nature, being around mountains. This is not alpine skiing; we're not flying down a mountain, but often Mm -hmm. you're very much in sight of mountains. Maybe on a service road in the mountains that's being groomed in the winter, you can train on. Being in the woods, it's uh, it's just a great sport for getting outside in nature, covering ground and, and moving. And there is that uh, tranquility to it, but then there's also a lot of intensity with the training. And it's a sport that requires a lot of endurance, but also a lot of power and also power <laughs> endurance, the ability to apply <laughs> power over long stretches of time. And so there was a lot that appealed to me, but number one was, was the n- aspect of nature. Number two was this uh, idea of just personal growth after being low in the mm-hmm. hospital, kind of at ground zero to see, to see progress in my life, mm-hmm. to follow a training plan that's written by expert coaches and to see that growth, be part of a team and to travel, to work towards long-term goals that are going to be difficult, but you put your training to the test in competition overseas. And then there's this incredible travel aspect to it as well. Skiing <laughs> in places like Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia, I've skied in Germany, Italy, New Zealand, Argentina, Canada, all over the United States. It's uh, it's just a wonderful sport. And I encourage people to look into it.
0: And- and um, and what is a, is it about when you're when you're in nature? What is, is it Is it the sounds? Is it the smells? Is it the, the view? I mean, what are you taking all of that in?
1: Yeah, you're taking it all in and, and I, I like being in and around trees. I always have. And I like being around mountains. And that's not something I grew up with. I grew up around trees in Kansas, but not around mountains. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty neat to be able to see the, the mountains and to... I've always just liked covering distance through my own energy, not through the energy of a machine so much. But there's a sense of quiet sometimes when you're the only person out on a trail, the snow's falling. Sometimes you see animals, wildlife, that's mm-hmm. that's a plus. Hopefully that wildlife is not chasing you on the <laughs> snow. <laughs> But there are many things that I like about it. And and just uh, maybe maybe because I grew up not cross-country skiing, and this is now new, if I had grown up cross-country skiing, maybe I don't want to do it anymore as a sit skier because I'm doing it from the seated position, mm-hmm. double pulling. And when you first start out doing that, anybody is not going to be good. Even people who have a professional cross-country ski background, if they get in a sit ski, they're not Good because it just takes training, learning how to maneuver it, and then training and technique, and then and then also just training your upper body to to now be this sort of workhorse behind this.
0: And I definitely want to talk about training. I, I wanted to ask about your traje- trajectory in terms of uh, so when did that recruiter come in? Uh, you know what what year or time frame was that? And then and then and then what was the time frame in terms of that? that time to the point where you were, you know, named to the the national team?
1: Well, I went to San Diego for that initial recruitment camp, which was a a introductory sports camp to a variety of adaptive sports, most, nearly all of which were summer sports. And the one representation from the winter sports side was actually Nordic. They had Mm. a, they had a a skier machine there and kind of had like a little demo of trying to ski and then shoot that that camp led to being invited to a camp on snow a few months later this is now going to be late november 2010 okay. so a year and uh, it's about 15 months after my injury i'm showing up on an introductory camp on snow in west yellowstone late november mm-hmm. around thanksgiving and it was dumping snow and i didn't really know how to keep my stumps warm and and the really to what kind of clothing to wear and and the sit ski was kind of like a lawn chair over two cross-country skis not exactly the right kind of seat for me based Mm -hmm. on having a double leg amputation so i was really slow but i i did i did like it and it it was it was enough it was compelling enough that i wanted i i thought okay this is the direction I, i want my life to go i don't exactly know how to make it happen because I'm still in the military, but let's just see, I, I want to do this. And so uh, I had after that a major surgery to take, to remove a colostomy bag that I had. And so I had to recover from that. By the end of August, 2011, I was leaving Walter Reed for good. Been there just, just shy of two years in DC in the hospital setting and was moving to Colorado Winter Park, still on active duty, but assigned in Colorado Springs to Fort Carson, living in Winter Park, to train. And then by the end of that next season, so the 2011 into 2012 was kind of the year that I started to get some more exposure to racing and and Mm -hmm. became uh, on the road to getting on the national team going to Sochi in 2014.
0: Yeah, and then, and so... You make, you make the national team and you make the, the Paralympic team. What, what, what was that like, just in terms of, you know, for you?
1: It was exciting. I, I was named to the 2014 Paralympic team, and this competition was held in Sochi, Russia. I, I think I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to perform, and I was still a new athlete. I had a lot of learning and development still to still. needed to occur but at the time i thought i've been doing this for three years full time i'm ready to go and i gave it my all it was a it was a good experience but i think it's it's good to get one of these out of the way and i had a lot of lessons learned um, including not listening to the announcer during a race not looking Mm. at the the live (laughs) race updates ignoring the cameras that are along the court just just that stuff doesn't matter and so it affected me though in 2014, but but I kind of was able to debrief that experience and come up you know what was good, what was bad, and make adjustments for the next cycle and some of the adjustments I made were no longer living and training at high altitude in Colorado, getting a better sit ski, a seat. We're working on getting now a carbon fiber seat and. Mm started to happen so dialing in the equipment and uh and then going to graduate school and that was a major change as well so i had three three pretty big changes in that second four-year cycle that were different than the first
0: well and you definitely made some adjustments because uh four years later later in pyeongchang i mean you you had some amazing uh, feats and and finishes
1: the adjustments that i made i think more than anything, when I talk about, oh, I, I'm no longer at altitude, I'm at sea level, or the equipment was different, or just even the progression of being in the sport a little bit longer, those those are significant, but really, I think the difference was what was going on up in my head, and because I had other things going on in my life, I wasn't so focused on results, on expectations, on yeah. outcomes, on meeting all of this, because I had a lot going on in graduate school and was focused on that. And it just sort of took the pressure off of competition because I thought, ah, I, my competition isn't isn't in graduate school, working on a master's degree right now. I mean, there, this isn't in what I'm doing is setting me up for other phases in my life. So I, I just want to go and have fun. Race. Racing is awesome. I was craving competition because I have been doing a lot of it while in school and and enough to be able to qualify certainly was skiing up in New Hampshire and Vermont on the weekends in the winter, but, but I was ready to go. I I was really looking forward to it. I certainly was not burnt out or over raced, which can be a problem by the time the the Paralympics come around and given season because it's in March and maybe you've been on snow four or five months at that point, but I hadn't that year. And I was, I was uh, in a good place mentally because I just was thinking, I want to go out and race, just see what I can do, see how deep I can dig across the finish line, knowing that I gave it my all, not really thinking about anything that happened yesterday or if something, if I missed a shot five minutes ago, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I mean, it happens, you know, I can't undo it. So just kind of being in this kind of present focus moment and that served me well. I think in my entire Paralympic career, going on about 10 years now, I've never had a uh, six-race competition, which we typically do in our World Cups, World Championships, and at the Paralympic Corner Games. Never had one go as well, not just in terms of results, but just in terms of my mental focus and just kind of I guess, being in a state of flow or I don't exactly know how to define it, but it just seemed like the races were, although I was going very hard, it was sort of like an effortless kind of effort where mm-hmm. I wasn't trying too hard and, and things were just going my way. And, and a lot of times in other races, things aren't going my way and the competition's pretty stiff, but on this one, it seemed like all of this was just kind of lining up physical peak, a mental kind of peak, and at the right time when you want it to on a four-year cycle that can be very difficult to achieve. Maybe it's the hardest thing to achieve in the cycle of a Olympic or Paralympic athlete because it's four years and to time that is, uh, is quite challenging.
0: You're right, timing is, is difficult and it's a long period of time for you. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's a long period of time to focus on on that, that training and the period leading up to that one moment. What, because you were so present and because you were in that, that, that great mental state, did it make the medals uh, you won in Pyeongchang sweeter, or uh, because you were more relaxed and, and not as focused on some of the things that can get in your head or get in the way?
1: During During the six races, I was so focused on once, once one race was over, regardless of the outcome. I'm, I'm getting ready for the next one. And we only had two off days during the six races. That's a lot of racing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was always thinking about, I need to be preparing for the next one, the next, you know, and then in that race, trying to be present in that race. But then this, the moment that that race is over, it's I need to get my recovery bar. I need to do this and that. and So at the very, very end, I was able to enjoy a lot more <laughs> mainly because I think the build, I just, I was just so physically tired and and there was some difficulty sleeping based on the fact that the metal ceremonies were a little bit later in the evening that I would have liked. And it was kind of hard to come back down from that high. So mm-hmm. I was, I was uh, ready. I was I certainly, I, I wasn't so so focused on winning medals. I just wanted to push myself and to see what I can do. And I I really like the intensity of being in a race. That is the biggest reward when you have the the races where the stakes are highest. And even if I'm not focused on the medals from those races, still though, there's just more intensity in the races at the games at the Paralympic Games. And so to be in that rate, in that moment, going as hard as you possibly can. That is why I do it. not, not because of a metal or it, it's, it's more about that, that intensity where you're, you're really just trying to go as hard as you can. So that's, that's what I was focused on. And when it was over, it's kind of like, Oh, whew, that's over. But I, uh, you you want to keep racing, you know. Like, I don't want to wait till the next season and <laughs> that's over now. You know, I got like eight months for kind till I can race again. But uh, so it's it's tough. And in this one, this this one coming up in twenty twenty two, which I'm very much focused on and training for right now, uh, I want to try to have a similar mindset, but also perhaps enjoy or soak in the experience a little bit more than I think I did in Pyeongchang because of what I everything that I just said yeah
0: and, and i want to or i think wrap our conversation with just by asking you about training so uh and, and we, when we can kind of look at it twofold one how do you train or let's say you're interacting with a with a new athlete that's come to a, a camp for the first time how would you recommend that they train to if they want to take on this sport and and compete you know at at these uh, competitions, or maybe even one day at the Paralympics.
1: Sure. My advice to a new athlete interested in cross-country skiing is: first, uh, it's great that you have this interest because it is an awesome sport. And regardless of what level you you may you may make or what level you you may not make, the sport itself is worthy of trying and pursuing because it is just in, at any level, the level of just touring across the snow through the woods, it is still a great thing to do, a great activity. But if you are inclined to want to pursue racing at the national team level at World Cups on the Paralympic circuit, that requires a lot of commitment, not only in terms of time, but in terms of your geographical location. Mm-hmm. You really need to reorient your life to where you are on snow at a cross country ski center or near one for four to five months out of the year. You have to make that commitment. You cannot make progress in this sport if you're not willing to or if you just if your life is not oriented in a way where you can make that commitment. So it does require a lot of time and effort, but also just that that, uh, I guess reorientation of your life, which is not easy to do. The other thing is that the training times for cross-country skiing, they aren't, it's not like being a cyclist or a swimmer where you can get your workout in pre 8.00 AM, go to work and then train again after 5.00 PM. We're training at typically nine to 11 or 930 to 1130 in the morning. That doesn't lend itself very well to a lot of kind of work but with work from home or with maybe part-time work there are ways that it can happen uh and the other you know the second session maybe is four to five or something so it's a little bit difficult in the winter to Mm -hmm. balance this sport with other things and I think that's an important thing to think about it's it's certainly an awesome sport but it is it is a huge commitment
0: Mm -hmm. but
1: well worth it in my opinion
0: Dan, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to, to bring up, or any last uh, uh, words of wisdom or advice for anyone that might be just um, looking into wanting to try this?
1: Well, I appreciate your questions. They've been they've been great, and and I think I w- I would say that again that cross country skiing is is well worth it. It's a beautiful sport. I encourage people to tune in this year to the Olympics and to the Paralympics that are going to be in. February and March 2022 in Beijing, China, if you want to learn a little bit more. And, and certainly, if someone is interested in Paralympic cross country skiing, I think they can. There are ways you can go on the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee website, the Team USA website, go under sports, go under Paralympic sports, find Nordic skiing. You can send, there's links to send emails to mm-hmm. the coaching staff. That's one way to get involved with adaptive skiing and they'll be in touch with you. We're, we are looking for new athletes all the time in the variety of categories. And I should also say, it's not just sit skiing. Like I do it, mm-hmm. it, it there is a, there are two other categories. One is for visually impaired athletes to ski with a guide Cross-country skiing, you're up, you're your skate skiing or your classic skiing, two skis, two poles, you're getting after it with your guide and you train together. The other category is either minor leg impairment or arm impairment. And you're skiing standing up. You're either skating or classic skiing. And depending on the impairment, you might have you might have you'll have two skis. You might have one pole or you might have both of your pole, depending on how you can do it. But so those are the categories and it's, uh, it's a team that is really looking to get new athletes right now. So please uh, reach out if you're interested.